Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have back with me you could say he's the Mike Munger of the Libertarian Christian Podcast because I think he might be our most frequent guest in all the episodes that we've done. This is Art Cardin's seventh appearance on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. He is professor of economics at the Brock School of Business at Samford University and a frequent contributor to Forbes.com and other popular magazines and scholarly journals. He's co-author of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich with Deirdre Nancy McCloskey, which we did an episode on, I think about 10 episodes ago, so not too in the distant past. And he's author of a brand new book out this month called Strangers with Candy, Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life. Art, we did it. We met our goal for June. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> we got it out in June. That's fantastic. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about being described as the Mike Munger of anything. So <laughs> I'll talk to Dr. Munger the next time I see him. Well, I would assume that it's a compliment simply because he's such a great guest and I'll be honest, like with Econ Talk, I've actually listened to fewer episodes over the years because they're a little bit less about economics and they only randomly hit on topics that I'm like actually interested in. But I almost always listen to the Mike Munger episodes. Yeah. So I'm hoping we have a bunch of Art Cardin fanboys out there in our audience. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mike is he's a friend and a mentor and he's someone I've looked up to for a very long time. So I, I definitely take it as a compliment. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I want to start off. We've had a handful of conversations about being an economist. We've talked about immigration in the past. We've talked about the bourgeois era and mm -hmm. why on earth life is so much better than it used to be. But sometimes these things just need repeating. And I want to get into that. But I also want to let people know a little bit about who you are. How did you get into the field of economics? I don't know how early it was for you. I don't even know if I've even asked you this question before or yeah. we've even talked about it. But I'd like to know a little bit like... Did you always want to do this or was it something that like triggered in your mind in ninth grade or something? So tell us how you got into this. I mean, so it's a little bit cliche. I always wanted to write. If I promised my seventh grade English teacher, actually, that I would devote my first book to her. Mm -hmm. And I kind of made good on that with this one. It's my first solo authored book. But the best place to start is probably my first semester of college. So I took Principles of Microeconomics and I thought I kind of knew what economics was about, sort of like a lot of people did. I was planning to major in finance because I wanted to be a stockbroker. And taking principles of micro, it just, it just opened up my eyes to how incredible this world is. And I don't know that I've ever actually talked to the professor. His name was Lonnie Brist about this. But he was he also was someone I was looking at. I was like, I like that guy. I want to be like him. And then I was confirmed when I took principles of macroeconomics, I decided to go, yep, I want to be a professor. And then the rest was sort of history. I don't know that I prepared as well as I could have. There are many, <laughs> many things I would tell my younger self to do differently. But yeah, that's how I got into it. I just was introduced to the power of the economic way of thinking and all of the stuff that it could explain. And it rocked my world. You seem to take your vocation as an economist very seriously. And I don't mean that in the somber sort of way, but like you attach meaning to it in a way that like you feel like maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me or elaborate. It seems like you attach a lot of meaning to being an economist and espousing a view of the world 
that is full of wonder and that what you're doing is a contribution to God's world. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think there's any such thing as just a job. In fact, actually, I was doing a thing yesterday where I mentioned that like whoever cleans Taylor Swift's toilets should go to work every day thinking, you know, I am helping to make, I'm helping to create a once in a lifetime experience for somebody somewhere in Denver, say, who's going to pay $1,300 for a ticket to go see Taylor Swift. And they can do all this because I have freed up Taylor Swift's time to give these magnificent and incredible concerts instead of hanging out cleaning toilets. Like once you kind of see how everything is interconnected, it's really hard. It's really hard not to wonder. There's a certain extent to which doing social science is kind of like when you're a little kid and you just want to look under rocks and see what's wiggling. Like I get to do that all the time. And yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm spellbound. I occasionally tell my students, and of course they think this is super duper nerdy. I say, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, but so does the quantity theory of money. And that's a lot of how I look at the world. Well, this book, Strangers with Candy, is one of those books where you can espouse that looking under a rock kind of mentality, a book of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And there's a handful of chapters in here that are about particular topics that a lot of people think they know something about. Maybe they don't know anything useful about it, but they also sort of they think they know something about it in a way that is useful to them. And then they read your book or they read any economist in some sense and be like, oh, wow, I didn't know it worked that way. Because there is a lot of illusion out there about how the economy works. I think it was Matt Ridley who kind of says that there's this sort of myth out there that there's this sort of God. Now, he's an atheist, or at least was mm -hmm. when he wrote this book, that there's this God out there structuring everything. And so we need to find order and meaning in everything. And sometimes these things are just emergent. Yeah. And economics helps us understand sort of which is which, I suppose. What do you think are some of the straw men out there about the field of economics? Well, maybe not the field of economics, about what economists do and what does it mean to do real economics? Because, I mean, obviously there's the nerdy stuff. There is the nerdy side of it. I mean, you have to know some of those things and be somewhat skilled at understanding those who are only in the nerdy side of things. Mm -hmm. But this is about everyday economics. And what would you want people to know about the field so that, <laughs> so that they would pick up your book? Yeah, so... When people hear I'm an economist, so when I'm on a plane or whatever, and someone finds out I'm an economics professor, usually the first thing they say is that they hated economics. And I'm scandalized by this, just because economics, I think, is just so fascinating. And then the second thing that I am usually told or usually asked is some variation on, like, what should I invest in? When people think about <laughs> economics, they think about money, yeah, or they think yeah. about the stock market, or they think about... So, for example, I teach in the business school... So a lot of students think that when they come into a principles of economics class, they're going to learn like the basics of running a business. And that's not what economists do. It's certainly not what I do. It's kind of like, imagine you had a course in like sports physics or something like that, where you could, and there actually is this really, really interesting little show called sports science that everybody should look up. But, you know, you can take a class in like the physics of what it, of a thrown football or a kick soccer ball or something like that. And you can understand what's going on without necessarily being particularly good, say, at throwing a football or kicking a soccer ball. That, I think, is sort of the relationship between economics and the business world. Mm. I think it is so much more because we can explain and understand all of human social reality just using a handful of simple principles. So, like, stuff is scarce and people respond to incentives. 
And from that point forward, we can begin to make sense of this seemingly inscrutable reality we inhabit. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think what made it an easy choice for LCI, because we're the ones who are publishing your book. And I think what made it an easy choice for me to help make this decision is that you and I both share a sense of wonder in the like almost maybe maybe not you i don't know maybe you get giddy about understanding how some of this works but it's just like so amazing the kind of results that we see like for example i'm sitting here in front of a macbook an mm-hmm. ipad wireless keyboards and mice you're in you're in alabama i'm in pennsylvania we've got technology here we're using stuff that would not be available to us when we were growing up Right. And we're having a conversation and doing something. We're creating value for people listening. At least I hope so. If I'm not too wordy, we're creating value for people listening. We're doing something that could not have even been done 30 years ago. Right. Right. Or it was only done by a handful of elites or whatever it might be, or the ultra wealthy, I guess, with another way of saying it. And so you and I both share a sense of wonder about the world. I know Jeffrey Tucker has always been all about this, like the whole Jetsons world mentality of like, We don't know what we're living in. And there's a lot of people that look at stuff and they're like, oh, okay, well, this is just the world that we have and it's the world we live in. You know, we think of this with our kids. I bet your kids don't appreciate certain things that you're like, oh my goodness, can you not believe how amazing this iPhone app is? And they're like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) You know, yeah, I try to help them understand that. Um, Of course, obviously, that they're growing up in a very different world than you and I grew up in. It seems quaint now to think that if you wanted recorded music, you had to buy a CD or a vinyl album or something or... If you wanted to watch a movie, you couldn't just yeah. you know, punch a couple of buttons on a remote control and presto, you've got your you, you've got your movie. Well, and even the word recorded music would have been a foreign word to Thomas Jefferson. Yes. Yeah, the very idea of recorded music. And, and in fact, actually, when it first started circulating, of course, people opposed it because they thought, okay, well, for, recorded music means that this is going to take all the jobs of dance bands and people who are making their money performing live music. But again, just the very notion of recorded music, you're right, would have been foreign to Thomas Jefferson or anybody else. I take a great deal of satisfaction from the way that Joseph Schumpeter described it when he talked about like who are the real beneficiaries of economic growth. And if you were the king and had your own private orchestra, then recorded music is really not that big a deal for you. Or you know, if you can hire the greatest comedians to give you private performances, then the types of entertainment media that we take for granted today are, again, just are really not that big a deal for you. It's the, a couple of things that really blow me away about all this is, first of all, just how cool and complex it all is. Second of all, the fact that we can figure it out. Like, we can understand how it works. I mean, not at a detailed, minute level. No one knows how to make a pencil and all that. But we can understand the broad principles that govern the whole thing. And then third, as someone who really cares about the poor, or at least I tell myself I care about the poor, The fact that the beneficiaries of long-run economic growth and things like this have been people of relatively modest means. It's not been pharaohs and kings. It's been people like you, people like me, the descendants of peasants, the descendants of slaves who now have access to untold riches. Yeah. That is really cool. Well, you were talking about a king having a private comedian or whatever. And I mean, you think about that now. It's like, imagine if you and I had the ability to have the amount of money to literally hire one person to be funny for us or perform for us whenever we wanted. That's not even what we'd want. Right. We'd just want the nicest iPad or 
the Apple's new Vision Pro that like gives us this apparent, you know, well, we don't know yet because we haven't experienced it, but it allegedly gives us this home theater experience that's like nothing else, right? Yeah. We don't want what the kings of hundreds of years ago actually had. That's right. too base for us. Yeah, so maybe if you were a king, you could have hired, okay, well, think about like King Lear, for example. So one of the, one of the major characters in King Lear is the king's fool. And so maybe if you're King Lear, you can hire Robin Williams to, to follow you around everywhere. Or you can hire Jerry Seinfeld to follow you around everywhere all the time. And look, okay, in that case, I actually would want that. Well, okay, but eventually we have diminishing marginal utility. So sure, great, Robin Williams was hilarious and Jerry Seinfeld is hilarious, but there's a lot of other people out there who are funny too. And the fact that today you can switch between you know Jerry Seinfeld, Jeff Foxworthy, Larry the Cable Guy, and all these others is really remarkable. And once again, yeah, this is yeah. something that's, a mundane experience for people even of relatively modest means. Like I think about this when I walk through or drive through some of the poorer parts of town here in Birmingham and I look and I see like there are all these clotheslines out there that are just decrepit because nobody uses them. Meanwhile, mm. every unit has like a direct TV dish on it. So people don't have to use these clotheslines that are outside anymore because they have washing machines and they now have direct TV dishes. And these are the poor in Birmingham. And I think that's worth, that's something that's worth celebrating. Yeah, I agree. There's a quote in your book very early on. One of the coolest things about studying economics is that you start to appreciate the beauty of an undesigned social order in which billions of independent minds cooperate to mutual advantage. Mm -hmm. I think that's in some ways, and from an ideological perspective as libertarians, that's one of the like, you say it's the coolest thing about economics, and it, it is. In addition to that, it's really, really beneficial to know economics if we're going to promote a free and flourishing society. Right. Yeah, because there, there's a notion on the left, particularly, that, that any, and this is kind of an interesting irony, because like they, a lot of people on the left have no problem whatsoever with the idea of believing in a completely undesigned natural order, but they can't comprehend a, an undesigned social order. Yeah, yeah, right. And Darwin, in fact, got a lot of his inspiration from Adam Smith. This is just sort of the story I've heard. But the fact that we can cooperate with and advance the interests of people we will never see, again, simply by doing stuff like paying our bills on time, feeding our kids, pursuing our own interests, so to speak, is really incredible. It takes a lot of imagination, I think, to be able to fully appreciate that just because I don't understand and cannot articulate how something is made or how something or how a system works doesn't mean that nobody can make it and that the system doesn't work. Hi, everyone. This is Jacob Daniel Winograd. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, The Biblical Anarchy Podcast where we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God, where we unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like you're hearing on this episode right now. Okay, I'll let you get back to it. Then you can check out the Biblical Anarchy podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the contents of the book. You were motivated by a couple of things that you mentioned in the book that most of us don't know how societies function. Most right. of, and economics can illustrate social mysteries, help us navigate the world that God created. 
And, and this is what I want to ask you about, economists haven't done a good job communicating this principle. So why haven't they? And what are you doing to correct this? I lose a lot of sleep over this, honestly. I don't have a particularly good story for why economists have done such a bad job of this. On one hand, yeah, there's a lot in economics that's really counterintuitive. The idea that, for a lot of people, like the idea that what America needs is a lot more foreigners. Like that's just kind of counterintuitive. Hmm. Or for a lot of people, the idea that everybody's better off when they agree to an exchange, again, might be kind of counterintuitive. So first, it, it's, it's just hard, but like I'm not sure that at a basic, basic, basic level, it's really that tough. I think economists have done a poor job communicating a lot of these ideas in no small part because we tend to be a little bit jargony, maybe. Mm. I think about a, a lot of the people who did the path-breaking work in, say, the late 19th century and whatnot. I think about like Karl Menger, for example, or I think in, in the Austrian tradition, Ludwig Mises, Friedrich Hayek. At all, you know, they're a little hard to read because English was not their first language. And unfortunately, a lot of us today, a lot of economists, even native English speakers write like English isn't our first language. So that's at least one of my tentative hypotheses for why is I don't really know that we make the effort to make economics understandable to non-specialists. What's the recommended reading level in your mind here? Oh, gosh, recommended reading level in my mind. I really didn't think I really didn't think that much about that when I was actually when I was going through it with Grammarly. Actually, I tried to go for general audience of non-specialists. So mm -hmm. basically, asked it to make recommendations based on reaching general readers who didn't know that much about the subject. I would like to think this is something that my eleven-year-old could read profitably. Something that my fifteen-year-old, well, almost fifteen-year-old. Oh, excuse me, almost 11-year-old and almost 15-year-old, goodness, they're my almost 13-year-old and almost 15-year-old could read, mm -hmm. read carefully. Again, one of the things that I point out is in terms of the style and structure of the book, I wrote each chapter so that you could read it while standing in line at the grocery store, or like you could read the entire book while waiting to get your driver's license renewed. <laughs> the idea is to produce something that is clear and transparent and that anybody can read and enjoy. Yeah, yeah. As I was reading it, I was thinking too about, I mean, our kids are about the same age and mm -hmm. I was thinking, hmm, this probably is high school level in just about, in terms of it's like, I wouldn't say peak, but there were a handful of chapters I think my 11-year-old would be just fine with. She may not be like really into it the way she is in some other things, but in terms of like if it were assigned to her to read by a teacher and to sort of repeat back to me what you learned from this, that would be totally within the realm. So we're dealing with a book here that is going to help kids and non-specialists, like you said, adults as well, of course, understand the wonder of the world. And it's probably helpful if we actually talk about that. I didn't even write this down in my notes and it just occurred to me. Probably need to talk about the title. Why Strangers with Candy? So this is actually something that it actually occurred to me at a birthday party. We cancel our kids and because we grew up in the 80s, so we know stranger danger and all that. We tell our kids not to take candy from strangers, but we buy candy from strangers all the time. We take candy from strangers. We take food from strangers. We take all sorts of things from strangers. Like, I don't know any of the people, you know, we just bought some chewy sweet tarts the other day. Like, I don't know any of the people who went into the manufacturing of those things. And yet market-based reputation mechanisms have made it so that we can cooperate with all these strangers so that they're better off 
so they're better off as a result of taking care of us. So even though strangers may not have our best interests at the front of their vision, they're nonetheless taking care of us because it's in their interest to do so. And the fact that we can cooperate with strangers to mutual advantage really is, I think, an important fact about the social world that we need to understand more. Why wouldn't you want to live in the past? I think of all the trouble I went through just to get this recording set up, Art, and if we lived in the past, I wouldn't have to do any of that. Well, I, there's, I'm sure there's a certain dignity that comes with burying one of your children or like seeing your wife die in childbirth, and I am missing out on that or I did miss out on that. So maybe in some sense I'm alienated and demoralized by it. But frankly, I, I would not want to live in that world. Um, the lives of our ancestors were solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short in almost every way. At the beginning of the 19th century, in the richest countries in Europe, life expectancy is about 40, maybe. Modern dentistry was revolutionary. Modern communications technology was revolutionary. I ask people from time to time, if you could choose to live in Florence, Italy at the height of the Renaissance, or Florence, Alabama in the year 2023, which would you choose? And at first, it might be nice to think, ooh, Florence, Italy, where all this amazing stuff is going on and all these revolutionary changes are happening. But if you lived in Florence, Italy at the time of the Renaissance, you're almost certainly one of the 80% or so of people who couldn't read and lived on next to nothing. If you live in Florence, Alabama today, it's very, very different. You can read. You have access to untold goods and services. Even if you want to live nothing but the highest of an intellectual life, Florence, Alabama in 2023 beats Florence, Italy at the height of the Renaissance every time. What about if you're poor? If we go with the whole, I forget the economists who did the veil of ignorance. You can correct me on this. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. So John Rawls does the thought experiment. John Rawls. I couldn't remember his name. So like think of John Rawls. If we were to say, hey, if, if you wanted to randomly be born then or be born now, even though you might end up being poor in today's world, why is that actually something preferable to potentially having something better in an older world? So that's interesting. People generally tend to be status seekers, and we also generally tend to be very envious. Neither of those are virtues. I think those are vices. So if you would rather live in the past because you would be richer than everyone around you, I think that's morally blameworthy. The big beneficiaries, again, of modern economic growth have been the poor, have been the least of these among us, because, again, they have access to goods and services that, um, that the kings of yesteryear could not have imagined. I think anybody, anybody who cares about actual material standards of living would pick, again, today, anytime. If what they care about, if what they care about is relative standards of living, then maybe... Somebody would want to pick sometime in the past, but even then, the likelihood that, like the likelihood that you're at the top of the social hierarchy in 1100 anywhere in the world is also is vanishingly small. Yeah. So you can either choose to be poor in history or poor slash middle class today. And again, I think today wins in every possible way. Well, and you know what's also is kind of leads to one of my next questions here is the difference between economic growth and economic progress, yeah. which is something that you spell out a little bit in one of your chapters on this, because I think a lot of people think of like people who are against the libertarian view that like we need to grow our economy in order to sort of rise out of poverty for everybody. Eventually, over time, it'll always happen. And everybody's like, well, you just can't have an infinite growth. And in one sense, maybe that's true. But in the other sense, it's like they're actually mistaking the idea of growth for the idea of progress. Like libertarians and people like you are 
who are more specifically economists, aren't necessarily saying economic growth is always good, are you? Or is it more about the progress piece? So I think it's important to distinguish between growth and progress. So in, in gosh, the book was I think 2006 or 2007, Randall Holcomb wrote a book called Entrepreneurship and Economic Progress. And he made this distinction where he said that economic growth is just more of the same stuff. Economic progress means better stuff. So it's not that we have, you know, it's not that we have two TVs, even though maybe we do have two TVs, but we have better TVs than we had previously. I think reframing this, reframing things in terms of economic progress rather than economic growth makes it a little bit more intuitive for me. And I think a little bit more palatable because if you just think about having more and more and more and more stuff, like I look around kind of my home office here and there's a pretty strong argu argument to be made that the last thing in the world I need is just more possessions. Yeah. I'd like to have nicer stuff, I'd like to have better stuff. But I think that helps to, I think that helps to reframe our understanding of long run economic trends, not just in terms of consumption of more and more material goods, mm -hmm. but in terms of ability to consume and use the things that buy our lights, make life worth living. Yeah. And that's why I think that this distinction between progress and growth is important. I lose exactly no sleep over the possibility that there's that there are any limits to long run economic growth because it's n people say it's a closed system, but it's really not. I think creativity is effectively infinite. And the number, the number of different ways we can tell stories, the number of different ways we can write songs, the number of different ways we can combine all of the material around us to satisfy our various purposes is, again, effectively infinite. Yeah, you use a story about, I think it was Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse as an example of the infinite amount of creativity that one can have. Yeah. And have you seen the, the new Spider-Man? I have. I have. Movie? Yeah, I have too. And it's really interesting. You've got the sort of, and I, I really don't know that much about comic book lore. Like the person that you want to ask about Spider-Man is actually my dad. But you have the sort of canonical original Spider-Man. And then you've got this sort of idea that can be retold and repackaged in a practically infinite number of contexts. I think about how people use Shakespeare, for example. It's rare, I think, to see an adaptation of Shakespeare where it's actually set in the time and place that Shakespeare wrote about. <laughs> There's a, on Amazon, you can find the Royal Shakespeare Company's 2012 production of Julius Caesar, which is set in post-colonial Africa, and it's amazing. There's a version of Coriolanus that I think it was Ray Fiennes did, where it's set in, it's sort of set in conflict-torn Eastern Europe. And there are all of these, so there are all these different ways to, to adapt and repackage Shakespeare. There are therefore all these different ways to adapt and repackage Spider-Man. That's a pretty cool example. And for listeners, they can get a taste of that by buying your book, of course. So let's talk a little bit about The Stranger. You have an entire part, which is a whole bunch of chapters on how to not help strangers, right? Mm -hmm. Or how not to help strangers. Yeah. What are some of the examples that you write about in there? So the top of the list would be a socialist or be a communist, because a lot of people are drawn to socialism and communism, I think, by compassion that is misguided. It's not that they shouldn't be compassionate, it's that they're directing their compassion toward social institutions that time and time and time and time again, we've seen are just absolute humanitarian disasters. So yeah, uh, you can discard socialism, you can discard communism. Consuming a lot, 
I think is a bad way to help people. So occasionally you might hear somebody excuse their consumption by saying, oh, well, it helps the economy. Well, no, it doesn't. Mm. No, it doesn't. Maybe in the very, very short run where prices are effectively fixed, but in the long run, uh, in the long run, what creates economic growth, of course, is ideas, but consumption doesn't generate economic growth. Saving is going to generate increased ability to accumulate capital and, and so on and so on and so on. So breaking stuff or spending a lot of money or uh, on consumption goods or what have you, these are not good ways to help strangers. Parenthetically, something that, that I would love to see someone do, I'm too lazy to do it myself, though, would be to look at municipal development policy and see the extent perhaps to which that has moved in the direction of consumption. So every city, it seems like, wants to create a special entertainment district or something like that. Like they want their city to have a bunch of places to go get hammered and a bunch of places to go be gluttonous and things like that. And I think it's a mistake to try to hang someone or try to hang an area's economic development dreams on things like that. That's interesting. I mean, I live in a an area where there was a city, I mean, the city of nearby where I live, when I moved here 15, so 20 years ago, it wasn't that much to speak about. And I know that they made it a concerted effort as a city. And obviously I'm succumbing to the socialist they as like, as if the entire city collectively did all this, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody here knows what I mean by that. Like the city planners and the people who wanted to do were involved in becoming a more artsy town and something that was a lot more hip as the kids don't say actually probably. And there's a lot of arts in downtown. There's a lot of really nice ethnic restaurants. There's a lot of entertainment fair that is not, I wouldn't say simply about gluttony or just getting trashed or hammered or whatever, but that is actually primarily for the enjoyment of things that are actually good in the world. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's true. So a lot of places that, that, that want you know, art museums and trendy hip, uh, trendy, really cool restaurants and things of that yeah, nature. Right. Yeah. So I'm being a little bit hyperbolic when I talk about just like just places to get hammered. But yeah, well, I didn't bring that up to contradict you. I I brought that up to say that there are a lot of municipalities really truly do say, well, how can we plan to bring people in? Right. Like if you're a town planner in Martha's Vineyard or a county or island planner, you're going to be like, well, how do we get people here? Right. And back in 2011, soon after the Great Recession and the banking collapse, the people of Iceland, the government of Iceland was like, how do we get tourists here? And so people are going to think about what do we do to attract money, attract attention and create those things. Obviously, when that happens, there are jobs created. There is enjoyment created. What else should we sort of see regarding that? I mean, what are the trade-offs? What are the the unseen, to use Bastiat's phrase? Well, so I'll just, I'll use Birmingham, Alabama as an example. So we've got a, we have a, a nice new stadium and Virtually every economist in the world agrees that government-funded stadiums are not economic development engines. We have enough data to know this by now, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah, just a yeah. theory of like, yeah, it's probably not going to work. We actually know. Yeah. So the it's flashy and it's nice and you can have an opening ceremony. It is a pretty cool stadium. I mean, it's neat to have it. It's not far from my house. And I've uh, been to see our USFL team and our United Soccer League team, and it's great. But the resources that went into that could have been used for something else. And if you're thinking about attracting people, perhaps over the long term, then the old standbys are usually things like low crime and good schools. So 
You can have all the stadiums you want, but fundamentally, what's going to attract people to stay in a place for a very long time will again be stuff like low crime mm. and good schools. Mm-hmm. So I think that the it's important to recognize that the resources that go into building stadiums and subsidizing various districts and whatnot are resources that could be used somewhere else. Mm. Yeah. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. I want to ask one more question here, and this has to do with business as a public service. I want to ask you that question, then I want to do a quick lightning round before we wrap up. Sure. So you talk one of the first chapters in part five, which is business is a public service. And I think that's an important thing to understand. And I think you have a personal understanding of your business as an economist, as it were. I mean, I realize that you're a professor, but you, in some ways, your business is teaching economics, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. your college, your university hired you. Why is business a public service? Why should we think of it that way? Yeah. So the chapter you're referring to was originally a review of Tyler Cowen's book called Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Antihero. And Cowan points out, and I agree with him, that a lot of the value that's created in the world is going to be created in business by business. Sort of the old standbys for me when I'm thinking about helping the world are just the law of unintended consequences. Very, very frequently we make policies like rent control or minimum wages or whatever that hurt exactly the people that we want to help. So that's a very, very clear example in which just working an extra hour at your job whether it's at a chicken place or designing websites or economics professoring or whatever it is that you're doing, is almost certainly better for the world in the long run than advocating for well-intentioned but misguided public policy. Mm. Then there's also, there's also the simple fact that, and this is a little bit subtle, that is what you've either been called to do or it is your comparative advantage and you're probably misallocating resources when you are moving in other directions to try to do quote unquote public service. 
So for example, let's imagine that you, so there's a hurricane and you collect supplies and then you decide you're going to drive those supplies down to the hurricane affected area. Okay. Like that's very, very well intended usually, but we live in a world where Walmart is a thing and it's almost certainly, at least from a material perspective, much, much, much more efficient just to send money or send gift cards to the people on the ground who are most affected because Walmart's logistics management is one of the wonders of the world. Driving a truckload of bottled water, say from Birmingham to the Florida coast or wherever, is it's a heartwarming gesture, but it probably doesn't do as much to alleviate the actual suffering of people on the ground as we think it does. And that's something I think people have a really hard time wrapping their minds around. I think it's the profit motive that gets people hung up a bit, right? Like if you're right. in public service, you're not doing it for the profit because one, yeah. you might not be paid well unless you're really high up. Although I know that there are outliers there like, you know, yeah. teacher unions and stuff. But but the idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to do this. Like, I don't know if you remember the guy in like April, May of 2020 who had bought like a gazillion things of hand sanitizer and then he was oh, selling yeah. them for like 40 bucks. And you and I are kind of like, well smart guy right and yeah. now people have hand sanitizer now but everybody just hated on him because it was all about profit motive i don't remember all the specific details and maybe he was motivated poorly in his own mind after reflection who knows but that's not inherently bad in order for us to understand what's going on right well we want people to do things for what we believe to be beautiful motives and for a variety of reasons uh, there it is motives yeah. For a variety of reasons, people generally tend to think that the profit motive is ugly. And there's a certain extent to which it kind of is. If you're saying, I am doing this because I want to make money, immediately people are sort of suspicious of that, even if you're going to use the money to take care of your friend or take care of your friends and family and the causes that matter to you and so on and so on and so on. So people have a the sort of aesthetic revulsion against the profit motive. And a lot of that I think is deeply rooted in the fact that for almost all of history, society was so, society was a war of all against all. Life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And the only way for one person to gain was at the expense of somebody else. So for example, if you look at the pyramids or you look at the ruins of ancient Greece and Rome and things like that. Those were zero-sum transfers. Okay? Those were not the net creation of value. We got the pyramids because the Pharaoh took stuff from people. We got the Colosseum because the Roman government took stuff from people. We have a Walmart distribution center, though, because Walmart is producing stuff that people want at prices they're willing to pay. And I don't know that we as a society have enough experience with that to really trust the profit motive yet. But there, I'm, in a lot of ways, I'm just kind of speculating. Yeah. Well, and... What I find ironic is that the person who wants to simply not buy the product because it's too expensive and maybe they can afford it, but they just, they're just not willing to pay 40 bucks. But like if the price were 10% off, they'd be willing to pay $36. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, wait, how is that any different from being motivated by profit? It's like, well, do you want to profit $4 or do you want to pay the rate that somebody wants? Oh, I want to profit $4. Okay. Well, how's that any different? Right. It just, yeah. It's like the wage bartering situation. It's like, well, the employers are greedy. They don't want to pay enough. Okay. Well, wait, you want more? How is that not greed? I'm not saying anybody has bad motives. I mean, we all want to negotiate and that's kind of what we understand this process to be. But like you can't attribute greed just because the wage is lower than what you'd want. 
because I could easily just say to you, well, you just want $20 an hour instead of $18 an hour. How does this not make you greedy? Can't you be content with 18? Yeah, it's rare to find someone who turns down a raise. And it's also rare to see someone go into a store. And then when the total gets rung up, they say, oh, you know, you're not charging me enough for this. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I'm going to offer you more. It does happen, but it's pretty infrequent. There's an interesting, there's an interesting asymmetry and irony in the way that people think about the profit motive on the employer, or, excuse me, on the supplier side of the market versus on the demander side of the market. And there's a similar asymmetry in terms of how they think about, in terms of how they think about discrimination. So for example, if I own a firm and I discriminate against people on the basis of religious belief, like everybody believes that's wrong. But if people choose not to go to like Chick-fil-A, say, because they don't like the employer, they, mm. they don't like the Kathy family's religious beliefs, somehow that's okay. I think a lot of it has to do with a sort of misguided notion that power rules everything. That, well, the people with the money, say, so employers or producers or whoever, they are the ones with all the power. And we, the hapless consumers, are completely screwed if we don't have someone like a big brother, say, to look out for us. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I think you set a lot of people straight and hopefully maybe don't even set people straight, but set people on the right path if they're high schoolers, just dipping their toes into the concept of how do I think about the world economically with your book, Art, Strangers with Candy. Subtitle, I haven't actually read the subtitle unless it was at the beginning of the show, Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life. This is a great book. It's not super long. It's also not super short. So there's plenty of material in there. I want to do a lightning round with you. So sure. I think you probably understand the concept. Some of these are related to concepts in the book. Some of them are not. Mm -hmm. And we'll see where you land. All right. Starbucks or Dunkin'? Indifferent. Oh, really? Okay. When you are at the grocery store, self-checkout or cashier? Self-checkout. I want to know why. I know this is a lightning round, but I just want to know why. I hate to say this. Like, I really, really do. You just but, hate people's jobs, right? No, well, no. But like when I it, frequently, like when I go to the store, it's like, it's rare that I go to the store and I'm in like the mood where I really want to talk to people. Uh, you know, okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to, most economists, most professors are, are introverts. I sort of want to save that energy for my family. So. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't go to Piggly Wiggly to have a, like a sort of meaningful social experience. I go to Piggly Wiggly to get carrots. <laughs> and and then save a lot of that for for the family. Now that's right. it. it's fun. Like it's really fun to go to the farmers market every so often, or every couple of months or so. Sometimes I'll just go to a Walmart or a Target and just walk around, just to kind of take in this cornucopia. Uh, and that's a little bit different. But yeah, for the most part, self checkout. Got it. Okay. For me, it's about which is the most efficient. Like, okay, am I if I go through self checkout, is it going to be a pain? Or if I mm -hmm. go th with this, like, there's one person in front of me in the line and they'll, you mm -hmm. know, it's efficiency there on me as well. Okay. Beer or grape nuts? Grape nuts. <laughs> I like that answer. All right. What is your one allowable deviation from being libertarian? That is, if you were king for a day, what kind of law might you make that would technically violate being a libertarian or disqualify you? Let's see. One allowable deviation. Oh, geez, that's tough maybe require everybody to take a basic economics course before they do anything in life. <laughs> I think so like the, the treatment effect of classes is pretty low. So I would say though, like I don't lose a ton of sleep over taxation and redistribution. Something like a basic income guarantee 
if we got rid of everything that we know of as welfare, that's a big if. If we got rid of all of that and just replaced it with something like a basic income guarantee, I think the world would be a better place. Mm. So if we had... So that trade-off would be your deviation. Right, yeah. Trade the welfare state for a universal basic income. Right. Like if we get rid of all taxes and replace them with just, say, like a property tax and then use that to fund something like a basic income guarantee or a negative income tax. I'm not going to go to the barricades to make that happen, but I'm also not going to reject. You're not going to protest it if that was, yeah, got it. Okay. Name the most recent U.S. president who, in your mind, has had at least a decent grasp of basic economics. Oh, geez. Last president with at least a decent basic grasp of basic economics, Coolidge. Inflation is repudiation, the business of America's business. Got it. Most recent U.S. presidential candidate who had a decent grasp of economics. There's really only one right answer here, Art. Well, see, a lot of people have run for president. Ron Paul, I would say, is... Yeah, that's the right answer. There's a, That's about it. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I think Joe Jorgensen probably also did, and she's more recent than Ron Paul, but props to Ron Paul, of course, right? Well, Lawrence Kotlikoff ran for president. Who? In 2020, yes. Yeah, so Lawrence Kotlikoff, he's a very well-known economist. Okay. In fact, actually, if you've heard people, if you've heard the notion that, say, unfunded liabilities in the United States for Medicare, Medicare and Social Security are somewhere in the order of $200 trillion, he's the guy who did the math on that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I guess he understood basic economics then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there a movie or TV show that you believe properly portrays sort of economics and distributions Enough so that you weren't annoyed by the fact that they didn't. Uh, gosh, let's see. Like, what is a show or movie that you've seen in relatively recently that economics kind of is in the background? Like, you're not constantly sitting there thinking, well, how did they produce that? They couldn't produce that in this post-apocalyptic world. Like, that's ridiculous. Anything like that that stands out to you as like, oh, that actually worked out pretty fine. Well, watching The Clone Wars with my kids. Mm-hmm they get into the political economy of things like trade policy. And I'm not sure they do it right. Well, they don't do it right. But the fact that they even sort of broach the topic is kind of, Mm. is pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't think of a movie or show off the top of my head that I've seen or watched that is really, really good from an economics perspective. And of course, as soon as we stop talking, I'll I'll, I'll think. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll just text me. Oh, hey, what about this one? Um, I've been watching uh, The Silo recently on Apple TV Plus, and so far, it doesn't seem to be a questionable premise in hmm. terms of like economic distribution, because I think they've accounted for the fact that it that the place is so darn big that they've just sort of black boxed the concept of how did we produce these things. But anyway, that was what made me think of it. I was like, I wonder what what, what movies art has said? This didn't bother well, me. Because, the, the Walking yeah. Dead is pretty good. Okay. Sort of watching the world of this sort of post-apocalyptic hellscape where, again, it just sort of descends into a Hobbesian war of all against all and seeing how, you know, seeing how people navigate that. Yeah. Well, hopefully we don't have to live in that world because everybody's going to read your book, Strangers with Candy, and we're going to understand the magic and mystery of the modern world. Your book can be bought. This is funny. I usually ask authors where their books can be bought, and I'm just going to say it because I know the answer because I set up the page. StrangersWithCandyBook.com. You can get it on Amazon right now as we're recording this and through the 
well, soon after, it's going to be available on Kindle for a little bit cheaper than it normally is. So you can pick it up on Kindle. You can order a physical copy from Amazon. But if you just simply want something easy to remember, strangerswithcandybook.com. Art, I really appreciate you writing this book. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to publish it. Sure. And thanks for having this conversation. And I'm sure I'll chat with you again sometime soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 